Welcome to Medieval Islamic Medicine. In this episode, Peter discusses the medical theory that underpinned of the Islamic tradition and how this was reflected in practice. The Arabs, as we have seen, inherit this great Greek tradition through this massive translation movement. Now, obviously, the question beckons, what is this theory? What did, did these ideas which they inherit consist in? Why were they so interested in these ideas and how did they use them? Now, we've already briefly mentioned that there's this idea of humoral pathology, the idea of the four humors. So the four humors are black bile, yellow bile, phlegm and blood. And the balance of these four humors means health and an imbalance means disease. Now what happens if you have an imbalance? Let's say you have too much blood. Obviously you have to get rid of the excessive blood. And how do you do this? For instance through bloodletting. So you kind of cut your skin. I mean there are different methods. One is called cupping. So you kind of put a little you in you do a little incision on the skin and then you put a cupping glass onto the skin. So basically what that means is that uh, you heat a glass and the, because the air is hot in this glass, uh, it is, uh, so to speak, uh, less dense uh, than the surrounding air. Now, if you put this then on the skin and the air cools, basically a vacuum, I mean, not a, a true vacuum, but like uh, under pressure exists. And so the blood from this incision will be drawn out or you can do something which is called phlebotomy or venesection. So you cut the vein and let the blood run. So these are two techniques which were very, which which are often mentioned in the theoretical literature, bloodletting, you know, like through cupping or phlebotomy in order to get rid of excessive blood. But the picture is slightly more complicated than that. I mean, it's not only getting rid of excessive blood or phlegm or bile or whatever, because each of the four humors within this kind of uh, system also has two of the four principal qualities, which are hot and uh, cold and dry and wet or moist. So these are the four principal qualities and each of the humors has two of them. And so if you have too much of a humor, which is, let's say, very hot, then you can use drugs which are cooling. So the drugs are classified according to these qualities. Some drugs are cooling in the second degree and drying in the third and so on and so forth. And by using these qualities, so to speak, you can counteract the excessive nature or the deficient nature of your humoral balance. So this is like one way of, uh, of curing diseases. But these four humors with their four cardinal or primary qualities uh, also are linked to many other things uh, within um, the um, nature of man. So they are linked, for instance, to the four seasons. They are linked to the four ages of man, you know, like youth uh, and then you know, like um, mature age, old age, and so on and so forth. They are linked to, to the stars, to the zodiac. So you have sometimes, I mean, you can kind of pic picture some sort of diagram, some sort of circle in which all these things fit uh, in a very interesting and convincing way. It's always in groups of four, also the four elements, for instance. Uh, they are all linked 
so to speak, to the nature of man, to this humoral balance. And so we see on a different level that the microcosm, man, the human being, is matched by the macrocosm and that the macrocosm affects through the stars, but also through the elements and so on and so forth, the human health. And this system, this humoral pathology, the system of humoral pathology was extremely convincing because it accounted for so many things. It was easy, it was logical, it looks very beautiful, it's symmetric. It's great, but it's hard to prove or disprove. But it was the theoretical framework for medicine, and people should not forget this, for medicine until the mid-19th, sometimes even the late 19th century. So people think in terms of human pathology. And we even see remnants of this system of human pathology, which the Greeks developed, which the Arabs and Muslims adopted, and which we also continue to use until the 19th century in our daily language. For instance, the word melancholy, or somebody is called a melancholic. So what does this mean? It means that he has too much black bile, melina chole, or somebody's a real choleric, or he's sanguine. They are all character types based on for the sanguine on blood or for the choleric on, 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 on yellow bile. So these concepts, these four humors are linked to four character types and they survive, so to speak, in our language and literature. So this is, this is kind of the theoretical framework. This is how therapy works. On the one hand, obviously, we have this Greek humor pathology and we wonder, well, obviously, we're talking here about a theory um, which existed for the medieval Islamic world for a thousand years. Did nothing change? Was there no innovation? Was there no um, development? And obviously there was innovation and development. Now the fundamental ideas of this humor pathology, the four humors, uh, the, the picture which I've just painted, that kind of stays in place, that stays in place not only till the 1500s, but also till the 19th and even the 1900s and even the 20th and even the 21st century in certain parts of the world. So that's not, these fundamental things are not really challenged. What is challenged and where we have innovation is on a more concrete level, for instance, on the, on the level of the description of diseases. So I'll give you one example. There's an author whom we will encounter again later on, on numerous occasions, uh, called Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria Arazi. Now, it's a long name, but basically, let just remember him as Arazi, or Razis. Uh, and he dies in 925, and he's probably the most innovative and greatest clinician of the medieval world. Not only the medieval Islamic, but the medieval world, I venture to say. And, and he, for instance, describes the difference between smallpox and measles, a difference which the Greeks did not know. So he develops um, techniques for differential diagnosis of two very similar skin conditions in order to treat each condition according to um, the needs uh, which the patient has who has this condition. So there's innovation on the level of differential diagnosis. There are new diseases which are discovered. There's an eye disease called uh, sabal. It's kind of an overgrowth, an excessive growth in the eye. And um, this, uh, uh, this uh, sabal, this, I mean, in English it's called panis. This, uh, this panis uh, is for the first time described in medieval Islamic 
um, manuals of ophthalmology, actually by somebody called Hunayn ibn Ishaq, this translator whom we've encountered, who is not only a translator, but also a medical author in his own right, and who has, for instance, written works on ophthalmology. And in these works of ophthalmology, not only does he for the first time describe new diseases, which were not recognized beforehand, he also introduces um, illustrations, anatomical illustrations of the eye. And uh, this too is an innovation, not so much on the level of the content of medicine, but of the presentation of medical ideas. So we have the anatomical illustrations, we have the illustrations of instruments, which for the first time, as far as we can tell, occur in the medieval Islamic world. So there are many areas, so to speak, in which we have innovation, even on this theoretical level in the learned medical literature. Um, and I've given you a couple, but you could name many more. So if we imagine somebody, you know, like breaking a leg, for instance, and coming to, uh, to a physician, certain things would be very similar as, as to what we would imagine nowadays. I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about very complicated fractures. People would set bones and that sort of thing. There were even like people who specialized in this sort of thing. So maybe not the, the, the elite physician would, might not even deal with this sort of thing, although sometimes he might. And in the medical literature, we have instructions how to set bones. So setting, setting bones or you like looking, um, look, dealing with a broken leg, that's something which people would, would have been very, very comfortable with. And where there might not have been such a great difference between what we read in the theoretical literature and what happens in practice. But we could also imagine somebody who has a cold. Uh, and obviously, there, the difference uh, between the theory and the practice might actually come to the fore. Now, if you go to a physician nowadays, you know, like very often, um, you either get, you know, aspirin or paracetamol or ibuprofen or maybe some antibiotics. But what, at least my impression as a patient, is that the therapeutical arsenal of that physician is fairly limited. On the other hand, I know that he has all these books, the Merck manual and many others, where thousands and thousands and thousands of drugs are described. We have a bit of the same situation in the medieval Islamic world. On the one hand, you have theoretical manuals detailing complicated recipes with, you know, like dozens of ingredients and very precise uh, instructions as to how to mix them, how many grams of this, how many grams of that, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, uh, we know from case notes written down by students, for instance, students of Arazi, whom I've mentioned before, took down how he treated individual patients. patients. And if we compare these case notes and what Arazi, so to speak, ordered in each and every case, and compare this to the um, theoretical medical literature, we see that the th therapeutical arsenal is much more limited. So, you know, he would resort to a couple of tried and tested remedies, which are not maybe too, too expensive, just as uh, a modern physician would do nowadays. Uh, but uh, since we are talking here about drugs, maybe I can add one other thing where we, we see, even on a practical level, where we see the influx of new ideas or where we see innovation. I've described uh, the, the Greeks and how they have the system of drugs having you know, like uh, cooling or moistening effects to certain degrees uh, and how these counter, so to speak, the imbalance of the humors. Now, obviously, when we talk about Baghdad in the 10th century, well, their plants, their medicinal plants, their 
uh, drugs available there would be very different from somebody who lived, let's say, in second century AD Athens or something like that. So what happens is that a lot of drugs come in from the East, from China, from India, massively. And so what happens in the ninth century in Baghdad is that uh, physicians incorporate all these new drugs. They classify them, they, they, they incorporate them in, into the systems, and um, they use the recipes uh, from their Indian colleagues, so to speak, which, which get transmitted to them. And, and on this level of the, you know, like, uh, of the practical use of medicine, um, we have innovation which would affect the patients. There's one wood, it's a, or it's a plant, yeah, no, it's, a, it's a fruit, um, myrobalan, my it's called, and uh, it's from India, and that occurs massively in the pharmacopoeias, in the manuals on how to compose drugs. And so there, even on the very practical level, we see this uh, this innovation. When we ask uh, what is the relationship between theory and practice, we could ask: Is it like today that theory informs practice and practice informs theory? That you base, so to speak, that you have clinical trials in order to develop new drugs. They are obviously discussed in the theoretical and the scientific literature, and uh, filter down at some stage to, to the patient. Now, I don't want to paint the whole medieval Islamic world with too broad a brush, but let's come back to this favorite author of mine, Arazi. Now, I'm talking about late 9th and early 10th century Baghdad, and this does not imply for all periods or for all localities. But at this time, and with this physician, it's clear that theory doesn't form practice and practice doesn't form theory. There's no doubt about it. So this man was a hospital physician. He was a director of a hospitals in Baghdad and also in his home city of Rai, which is close to modern uh, Tehran. And he saw an, a tremendous amount of patients during his life. He took case notes or he had students take case notes. And when we look at his theoretical medical writings, we see that he sometimes says, oh, well, there's a Greek procedure, let's say for phrenitis, a condition which I've mentioned before, sort of meningitis. He says, oh, well, okay, this is what I find in the medical literature, let's say bloodletting and other procedures. And in one case, he says, well, I wanted to be sure about how, whether this really works. And therefore, I had I, I, I left a control group, I mean he doesn't call it a control group, he just says I left a group of patients and did not administer the treatment but they all became uh, frenetics so they all suffered from meningitis and therefore this proved to me that this treatment was effective. So even on the methodological level there was there was a lot of sophistication going on in this use of a control group is something which uh, we don't find uh, in the Greek world. So not only do we have innovation, so to speak, on the level of new drugs, new diseases, new procedures, um, but also on the methodological level. And we have this close link between theory and practice, theory informing practice, and vice versa. It's a very stereotypical view of medicine, not only in the medieval Islamic world, but in the medieval, medieval or even early modern world in general, is that if you went to a physician with all this bloodletting going on and all this purging, that basically did more harm than good. Like bad medicine, doctors doing harms in Hippocrates. This is a title of a recent publication. You know, like you basically put your, I mean, you were much better off just staying at home and you know, like waiting, you know, like and uh, 
just sitting it out, so to speak, and hope for nature to cure you. Because from a modern point of view, all these drugs uh, which are described as bloodletting and all these other dreadful things, they did more harm than good. Now, I do not believe that that's true at all. I mean, maybe in certain instances, yes, but as a general picture, certainly not. I mean, first of all, you have this idea, and this is already developed in Hippocrates, that you should... The first principle of any, or the first thing any physician should do is not to harm. So basically, be careful. Don't be over enthusiastic. Don't just you know, like have too much confidence in your own ability. First of all, not to harm. And this is something this is well known in the Islamic world. You find this uh, this injunction repeated over and over again. And then, obviously, there's like this idea of the placebo effect. Most was it only people were given certain pills and from a modern point of view, oh, we can't see any active ingredients in them. Was it just uh, a question of uh, like taking these pills and then the placebo effect had been a, uh, you know, had certain benefits, but that's, that's the end of it. Even that I do not believe. I mean, look at the, look at one medicinal plant, opium. I mean, we have many recipes for, for many drugs for, for, for the eye or for other conditions in which, uh, like opium is used or you know, like you know certain extracts of poppy seed and so on and so forth are used and uh, certainly these are active ingredients which would have worked you know like they are take rabies you know like you get bitten by a dog uh, they say wash the wound with alcohol or that sort of thing keep it open that would have been very good advice so there are many 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 instances where certainly um, the procedures described even from a modern point of view, would have a beneficial effect. And the other thing is there's an, there's an external, so to speak, uh, piece of evidence. How did certain doctors become um, so prominent, uh, were in such high demand? You know, I don't believe, um, for one, that if they were complete charlatans, they could have sustained, so to speak, that level of attention and that uh, esteem. You know, no, obviously they, they, they knew, they were able to diagnose, they were able to see what's wrong with the patient, uh, they had a lot of experience with patients, and they knew a certain diet, for instance, would, would set st uh, things straight. And they weren't also those butchers, which we sometimes imagine that they only do bloodletting and so on and so forth. So in that sense, there are many, many um, benefits to be derived from that sort of med medicine. This said, for instance, we have a poem by somebody, an anonymous poet, who's, who compares a physician called Isa, so Jesus, it could have, this could have also been a Muslim name, or also a Christian name, but it's not clear, who compares this physician called Jesus to the Jesus of the Bible, which the which also mentioned in the, in the Quran, and says, you are the opposite of Jesus. Jesus, you know, raises people from the dead, and you put people to death. So there is like a, a certain perception that some physicians obviously are, um, some physicians have, a, uh, this, uh, there is this perception that some physicians are really, really bad. And we have another quote uh, from a different source, um, Hajia Khalifa, and he says uh, that the usefulness of surgery is very great, but the practice of it is less certain than its theory. So even some authors here recognize that, um, well, you have all these instructions what you should do in surgery, but as a patient, you don't want to go there. 
and obviously many doctors were aware of that too and they did not use all these complicated uh, um, theoretical um, descriptions of certain you know like surgical techniques uh, in their own practice in our next episode we look at the role of medical practitioners in society and the institutions and environment in which they practiced Peter's book, Medieval Islamic Medicine, written with Emily Savage-Smith, is now available.